Chris, and I uh, said so then, uh, you know, what he does in uh, 15 hours, or, uh, and you're allowed to do in 17, I'm not sure I could do in like four weeks, but a uh, pretty amazing story. Well, a lot of you probably received uh, the email uh, that I sent out this week, uh, kind of letting you know that uh, Joshua Metzger, who's been our worship and creative arts pastor for uh, the past year, when he came, uh, made a year commitment to be here, and that year really has come and gone, and uh, Josh has the opportunity to go back home to Cincinnati and to uh, serve at the River Hills Church there, and so uh, he's going to be going and uh, heading that way, and so uh, today's his last day uh, to lead worship for us, and so Josh, come on out. I want to pray for him, and I know that you'll want to, yeah, please. Josh has uh, brought energy and excitement and uh, level of musical excellence to our worship, and we're very appreciative of all you've done, man. And I know you'll want to personally greet him um, when the service is over today and just uh, express your appreciation to him. But I want us to uh, pray for Josh right now, okay? God, I thank you for uh, Josh and for the investment of his life that he's made in this place. God, I thank you for our friendship. And Father, I just pray that in the days ahead and the journey ahead, God, that you would guide his steps. God, that uh, he would trust you to lead him. God, that you'll continue uh, to use him in really significant ways in your kingdom, and especially, Father, as he serves at River Hills. Uh, again, God, just thank you for uh, the place and the mark that he's left in our lives. And would you continue to bless him? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, Josh, have you gotten a haircut the whole time you've been here? or is it Once. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. I encourage him every once in a while. You think maybe a haircut would be a good thing? No, I don't need one yet. Hey, uh, a lot of you know the boys and I uh, traveled uh, a few weeks ago up to uh, Indiana to see a football game, and we landed in Indianapolis, and my brother lives in Greenwood, which is on the south side of the city, so we uh, decided we'd stop by quickly. And as we were driving through the city and passing the subdivision uh, on our way to his house, there was this handmade white cardboard sign in marker and you guys will, I, I know in first service they thought that we were totally warped because we found this incredibly humorous. I think it was just the fact that we couldn't believe somebody would put something like that on a sign and hang it out where hundreds of people would drive by and see it. But there was this sign, and Matt and I especially, we, we laughed so hard about this. We read this sign, here's what it said. Cheryl, con artist, thief, liar. Now I know. I'm sure there is a really sad story behind that, and uh, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of details that I probably don't even want to know that prompted somebody to do that, but I just couldn't imagine as we were driving by that somebody would stoop that low to write that about Cheryl on that sign and post it where everybody could read it, that they would label her as a con artist, a thief, and a liar. But you know what? We tend to label people all the time, don't we? He's friendly. She's bossy. Oh, he's good looking. She's really smart. He's lazy. We tend to develop some misconceptions about people at times. Sometimes we have misconceptions because we believe what other people tell us. Sometimes we have misconceptions because we base everything on a first impression. Sometimes we have misconceptions because we buy into certain stereotypes. I wonder this morning, do we at times develop some misconceptions about God and do we give God some labels? Labels like this. He's not really listening. He's distant. He's out of touch. He doesn't really care about me. 
I can't get His attention. In our pursuit of knowing and understanding God, there are some labels that we should not forget to give Him. These kinds of labels. He is big. He is powerful. He is strong. He is majestic. Sometimes I hear heard people pray. And in their prayer, they have said something like this. They have said, God, would you help me with whatever it is, if you can, if you're able. Now, maybe they didn't use those words exactly, but that's what they're implying. It's as if they were praying, saying to God, God, I have something that I want you to handle, but I'm not convinced that you are capable of handling it. But is there anything that God is not capable of handling? The God, the God who parted the Red Sea, who covered the earth in water, the God who brought down the walls of an entire city, the God who could make the blind man see and bring people back from the dead, did that God somewhere along the line of history lose His power? If I'm honest though, in my life, there are times when I act as though He did. As though somewhere along the line he lost his ability to do big things. A.W. Tozer said this, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What is your mental image of God? If we're going to elevate our lives, then we need to elevate our view of God. And we need to remember that it is a reality that our God is a big God. That God is a powerful God. That God is a majestic God. And that He is the supreme God. And so today as we wrap up this Elevate series, I want to look at one more story from the lives of the early Christ followers. A story which I think gives us a glimpse of the greatness and the bigness of God. And as we've been doing all along, we're going to be in the book of Acts again. And so if you brought your Bibles today, I encourage you to take it out right now and open it up and find the book of Acts. And if you're joining us for the first time today and you're not sure where the book of Acts is, it's in the New Testament part of your Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, and then you'll find the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 12. Now let me just uh, give you a little inside thing here. Uh, you probably, a lot of you caught on to this right away, but do you realize this uh, journey we've taken through this Elevate series did you catch on to the fact that all these things that we have talked about closely correlate with our seven core values here at Crosspoint? And so really what we've done over these last few weeks is kind of take a very personal journey through the seven core values and look at that. If I applied these to my life, how would it elevate and change my view and perspective of life? I want to look at one more of those today. This story is found in Acts chapter 12. It really doesn't need a lot of background, so let's just jump right in uh, to verse 1. Here's what it says. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had the James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. He was political even back then. If it pleased the crowd, maybe I'll try some more of it. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's also right around the time of Passover. In fact, in the New Testament, sometimes those two things almost become interchangeable in their terminology, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. 
After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. They rotated throughout the day so he was guarded around the clock. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And here's what happens in the rest of the story. The church is praying and God goes to work. He sends an angel. Peter is deep asleep one night in prison. So asleep that when the angel shows up, he has to kind of, you know, poke Peter, get his attention, wake him up. Peter wakes up. The angel says, get dressed, put on your sandals, take your outer garment, let's get out of here. He leads Peter out of the prison and it says that they weren't, they were the length of a street. And I don't know for sure if that means they were several blocks or exactly how far that is, but a ways away from the prison. And finally, Peter realizes this isn't a dream. The angel disappears and he looks around and I'm out of prison. This is really happening. So he goes to the home of some of his friends. It happens to be the place they have gathered to pray. He knocks on the door repeatedly. Finally, a servant named Rhoda comes and hears his voice, but doesn't open the door, doesn't let him in. Goes back inside, leaves Peter out there in the dark. Goes back and says to everybody in the house, Peter's here. To which they say, you're crazy. He's in prison. We saw him arrested. No, really, he's outside the door. No, he's not. We're, we're sure. He really is. And finally, they, they give in and they go to the door and open up. There's Peter. They can't believe it. It's kind of a frenzy of excitement. He calms them down and he explains what happened. The greatness of God. The bigness of God, the power of God is so clear. So let me take you through a few things in this story that I think would help us to raise our view of God, raise our mental image of God, and remember His bigness and greatness in our lives. First, the church was praying. Peter is arrested. And so because they believed in the power and the greatness and the bigness of God, you know what they did? They prayed. They prayed and they asked God to do something great. They figured, we need His strength. We can't fix this, but God can. And so they begin to pray. They pray hard. In fact, scholars tell us that they, there were many of them that gathered to pray. They probably prayed night and day for as long as a week because they believed in the power and the greatness of God to do something. You know what? Our God is a God of muchness. I know that's probably not really a word. He's a God of muchness. In fact, when you hear the word muchness or much, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? It's a great word, isn't it? Much. I'll be honest, one of the things that I think of when I think of much is food. In fact, I was thinking this week as I was writing this, I pictured back to our potluck picnic at the Yacht Club last Sunday night and thought there was a muchness of food. Great. I uh, was thinking also as I was writing uh, about all of the trash that our teams have picked up here at Mariner after the home football games as we're serving the school here. Believe me, over the course of three seasons, including Friday night's homecoming, there is a muchness of trash. I I was thinking about driving the Buick in our family pool of cars. A lot of you know, for a long time I drove a little Scion, a little four-cylinder thing. It doesn't have any pickup, no power, and no space. There's There's no muchness to it. But at the beginning of the school year, uh, Michael and I switched cars because uh, of some gas mileage things. And so now, now I'm driving the Buick. It's a big V6 with lots of power. And so I thought of the muchness of power and speed, if you let it, when I drive that car. What comes to your mind when you think of much? Our God is a God of muchness. In fact, Philippians 4.19 says this, 
And my God will liberally supply your every need according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You know what that's talking about, the language there? Isn't that, oh, God will fill you up halfway? God will fill you up three quarters of the way? No, the language there is the idea that God will fill you full. That's the muchness of God. When I was a little boy, maybe you can think about this too, when you were little, do you remember seeing a, a gumball machine? Didn't it sort of seem like as a child there was this never-ending supply of gumballs in that machine? Like it would just always be there. And you, In fact, when I was a kid, this will date me, you know, you could take a penny and you could put it in the gumball machine and you could turn that little handle and a gumball would come out. And it seemed like there would always be this endless supply, but... To access that endless supply, the muchness of gumballs, you had to take that penny and put it in the machine. How is it that I access the muchness of God? The Bible says I have to pray. I have to ask Him for that power in my life. When Joseph Stoll was the president of Moody Bible College, he tells about some students who came over from China, took classes at Moody, and as they were moving towards um, graduation, he asked them one day, he said to them, you know, you're going to graduate with all that you've learned here at Moody, with all of this education that you now have. When you go back to China, you'll probably be leaders in the church, won't you? And they immediately corrected him and said, no, when we go back to China, they will listen to us pray. And that's how we will earn the right to lead. You know what, maybe when you hear that you think, well, of course. You know, if you're a persecuted Christian living in China, that need that you'd have, the fear maybe that you would have, would drive you to access the muchness of God. But I'm an American Christian. I've got a job. I've got a roof over my head, clothes in the closet, food on the table. I've got a good husband or wife, or I enjoy being single. I even get to take a vacation once in a while. I'm not really in need. You know the saddest day in the life of a Christ follower? is when we look God in the face and by our words or by our actions, we indicate, I don't really have any needs. I've got it all taken care of on my own. That's a terrible form of self-deceit. Jesus one day when He was talking, writing to the leaders of the church of Laodicea, speaking to them in Revelation 3, He says to them, you make me sick because you keep saying, I am rich and have need of nothing. So they were living in the sin of self-sufficiency. They thought they had it all together. They didn't need whatever God had. But the muchness of God is accessed through prayer when someone prays who understands they absolutely need God. They absolutely have needs that only He can meet. In fact, Philippians 4.6 says this, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Walter Knight wrote this. He said the ancient church had a minimum of organization and a maximum of power. But the church today has a maximum organization and a minimum of power. Do you know why that is? Because we've grown rather self-sufficient. And we've believed the lie that we can do it ourselves and we've forgotten that we have to access the muchness of God 
through prayer. Well, the church was praying. Peter was waiting. Listen to verse 6. It says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Centuries stood guard at the entrance. He was sleeping between two soldiers. I wonder as I read that, how do you sleep in prison so deeply that somebody has to shake you to wake you? How do you sleep when you know that the outcome of your life may be the same as James who was killed by a sword? I'll tell you how I think Peter could sleep like that. Because he believed completely in the power and the greatness of God. We've all been in the waiting room of life, haven't we? Waiting on test results. Waiting to hear back about the job. Waiting for the money to come. Waiting through the latest turmoil with our kids. We've all been there. You know, I wonder while Peter sat in the prison cell, if he kept thinking back in his mind of some of the verses from the Old Testament that he'd heard growing up in the temple. Verses that as a young Jewish boy he had recited himself. In fact, maybe as he sat in prison, he kept thinking of Isaiah 41.10. It says this in Isaiah 41.10, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. It's a great verse, isn't it? In fact, you probably ought to write down that reference right now. Isaiah 41.10. Write it in your notes there somewhere. And when you go home today, find a card, a piece of paper, and write that verse out. Put it somewhere. Take it with you. And the next time you find yourself in the waiting room of life, pull it out and be reminded of God's promise to be there to help us and to be our strength. The church was praying. Peter was waiting. God was working. Listen to verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chain fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Then jump down to verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent His angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Peter says, I know without a doubt God was at work. While you are waiting, and maybe your question this morning is, well, how long do I have to wait? I'll be honest. I don't know the answer to that question. Sometimes it seems we wait longer than others. But while you wait, I can tell you this. God is at work. The people of San Padre, Texas used to depend on a bridge. In fact, the longest bridge in Texas that connected the island to the mainland. In fact, 19,000 motors a day would speed across that bridge trusting in the strength and the structure of that. It was a massive structure of steel and concrete. It looked like you could absolutely depend on it that nothing could ever happen to it. The, the pilings were sunk deep into the water. Some of the best engineers had designed it and they trusted it. They trusted in the strength of it. Until early in the morning on September 15, 2001. It was just a bad week all the way around if you think back to what happened. 
But on September 15, 2001, a tugboat and four barges ran into the pilings of that bridge, causing a 27-foot section of it to fall 85 feet into the water, carrying with it some cars and people, eight of whom died. And what appeared to be a massive, strong structure crumbled into the water. You don't ever have to worry that something like that will happen to God. He will never crumble. He will never lose His strength. He will never change. You won't wake up one morning and find out that God's in a bad mood. He never gets tired. He never sleeps. He will always be there. And He is at work. What is the problem that's been causing you to struggle all week? Is there something that has caused you to even struggle to concentrate at work this week? I wonder if the problem is perhaps that in your mind you have been taking that to a God who is too small instead of taking it to a God who is big enough to handle it. God still works. I sent out a Facebook email this week asking a question about this message. And uh, I just asked this week, tell me about a time that God has done something powerful in your life. And I got back a lot of responses. People remembering things in the past. How God had provided a house early in a marriage that was way beyond their dreams. And how God had helped somebody get out of a very abusive situation. And God provided just through daily life. All of them were remembering things from the past. Where God had taken care of them. That's the last thing I noticed in this story. These people were remembering. You see, all of this takes place during the time of the Passover. And the Passover was a celebration. It was a, a celebration of what God had done in the past. You see, as a nation, the Israelites at one time found themselves in captivity as slaves in Egypt. It was a terrible life. But God, by His great provision through the leadership of Moses, got them out of that captivity and led them into a wonderful land that they began to live in. And God said when He took them out of Egypt. He said, I want you to always remember this event. I want you to, to celebrate the Passover as a reminder of how I provided for you and how I cared for you in the past. But as you move along in this story, there's a couple of verses right towards the end of the story that, that give us a glimpse into the fact that maybe these people, a lot like us, struggled to fully believe that God could provide for them in the present. Listen to what happens beginning in verse 13. So Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. I mean, we can relate, can't we? There is a part of us that absolutely believes God is there. But at the same time, there is a part of us that struggles to really believe and fully trust that God could still work in my life today. And I think that's exactly where these people were. Even though it was a season when they should have been remembering that God had done incredible things in the past. God had always provided for them. God had cared for them. God had done big things. Even with that in the back of their mind, there was a part of them that struggled to believe that God would really get Peter out of prison this time. We've probably all been there too, haven't we? In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, there are many times 
that God said to His people after He had done something big, something great, He said to them, I want you to build an altar. Now, part of that was He wanted them to worship Him in that moment for what He had done. But you know what other reason that God often said to them, I want you to build an altar? was so that they would remember. Because God knew that there would come a time in the future when they would need Him and they would need to be reminded of what He had already done for them in the past. And so He said, build an altar. Probably will look a lot better than the crude one that I have built and maybe something more like the one that's pictured here. But God said, I want you to remember if I was faithful in the past, I will be faithful in the present. Now what I'm guessing for all of us in this room today, there are some things in our past, some moments in the past, where we look back and we know whether it was something very simple or something very big, that God, God was at work. Why is it that we think sometimes if God took care of me in the past, that He's going to somehow drop the ball and not care for me in the present? I want to do something right now. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to get up and participate. There are a bunch of rocks laying along the edge of the stage here and there are some Sharpie markers. And I want you to think back right now to some time in your life when you've seen God take care of you. You've seen the bigness and the greatness of God. In a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to come down here and pick up one of these rocks and with the Sharpie right here along the stage, right on there, a word that would remind you of that moment. I want you to take that rock with you and I want you to put it someplace where it will be a constant reminder to you that if God was faithful to care for me in the past, He will be faithful to care for me in the present. And so whatever that is, right now, feel free to to get up, come on down here, pick up a rock, pick up a Sharpie, write a word on there, put it down the pen and then head back to your seat. It's going to be congested and confusing for a minute. That's okay. Just come and be reminded of how God's worked in the past.
A.W. Tozier said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What is your mental image of God? You want to elevate your life? Then elevate your view of God. And remember every day the bigness and the greatness of God and His ability to work in our lives today. God, I thank You that You are a big God. God, You are a great God. God, I have seen You work in my life. I have seen You do things that are so incredible. Father, forgive me that there are days in the present that I act as if You won't work today. God, I thank You that You do work today. And that Your bigness and Your greatness and Your power is the same today as it has always been in the past. And it will be the same tomorrow. Thank You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, probably one of the best pictures of the greatness of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there, God met our greatest need. The need for our forgiveness for our sin. And through the death of Jesus on the cross, that sin was taken care of. I've never experienced a greater love in my life than the incredible love that God has for me. That's a picture of the greatness of God. We're going to share in a time of communion right now. It's a very simple reminder of the greatness of God and the greatness of His love for you. So as our hosts and hostesses pass out the emblems of communion, there'll be a small piece of bread, and if you'll take that and eat it whenever you're ready. There's also a cup of juice, and if you'll take that and hold it, in a moment I'll come back and pray, and we'll take that together. Just simple reminders of the fact that God loves you. God, for the gift of Jesus, we say thank you. 
for the greatness of your love for each of us. Thank you. I've never experienced a greater love in my life than the love that you have for me. Thanks for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can pass the buckets along the center aisle to dispose of your cups.
Thank you. 